in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about craft, community, and building meaningful careers. Today, we are graciously joined by Colleen Chen. And yeah, <laughs> so just a quick intro before we get started. Colleen Chen is an urban planner, researcher, photographer, struggling millennial working on implementing material and meaningful changes for the communities she lives in. Currently, Colleen is a senior product manager at the New York City Economic Development Corporation, developing waterfront and industrial sites for the burgeoning offshore wind industry. Colleen has worn many hats as an urban planner, from renewable energy to climate relocation to last mile transportation planning. The common thread is her theory of change, catalyzing climate infrastructure projects to invest in more connected and just communities. Colleen's pretty rad. She's got a bachelor in science in global resource systems from the University of British Columbia and a master's in planning in city planning, excuse me, from MIT. Welcome, Colleen. Welcome. Hey. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining. A quick little insight is we met Colleen through Jackie, JT Jagatak, who's been on the time on the Moon Tea podcast and is literally one of the best people to recommend people that are awesome onto the podcast. So shout out to Jackie and Colleen. She's also the she's also the head of charcuterie and the head (laughs) of client relations at the Moon Tea podcast. So (laughs) <laughs> that's a, that's a really good role this is a very good role for her <laughs> hello jackie we she might be on the other side of this wall right now Yo, <laughs> colleen are you canadian i am canadian very didn't i gave that away that comes up so quickly in conversation and i don't even try it somehow it just happens i'm like oh nice to meet you where are you from and they'll ask me the same thing but yeah i am from i am canadian i was born and raised in vancouver over on the west coast of canada and i love it very much even though i don't live there right now cool was there anything you wanted to add to the intro oh absolutely not i think it was perfect Perfect as it was. I think I come off really as a really nerdy urban planner and I try to tamp it down, but then I sometimes I'm like, I'm a Capricorn. I should just embrace this as a part of my personality. Just keep on going in on that stuff. Yeah. Maybe it would be cool to talk about EDC and like the work that they do. And then maybe also Brooklyn Bridge Park, because that's like a super cool project. Also fun fact, my girlfriend's brother interviewed at EDC. I think he got to the final round. Very cool. What does, not that this is about him, but what does he do? He does similar stuff, but he just accepted a job in London at a company that I don't know of, but he really liked everyone that he met at Very EDC. Cool. And uh, yeah, seemed, I mean, I feel like when urban planners like go into that profession, like they think of yeah. a company like, or like a firm like EDC, yeah. and then they usually end up like doing other things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think urban planning is just like a little bit nebulous. It's like it can be many things. That's probably also it. Like you can work for the public sector and you work private sector or tech in tech or in literally so many other professions and types of work. So it's really nice to be in community with planners when I get a chance because usually 
we're all doing different things. But I can definitely talk more about EDC. EDC stands for the New York City Economic Development Corporation. It is a quasi-governmental agency. And what that means is that New York City is very bureaucratic. So there are a lot of different processes to have a kind of a public uh, serving entity. You might have read the great book, The Power Broker, all about Robert Moses. But one part of his legacy is leaving really a mountain of bureaucracy for the city of New York to function. And as a result, the city has created some like entities like EDC that serve the public, but are not necessarily like a regulatory authority. Anyways, long story short, EDC is the workforce and economic development arm for the city. We are quite political as in like we're like a tool of the mayor's office with every new election, new priorities come about in the agency as opposed to maybe like other institutions, like the housing folks, they all focus on housing and those priorities maybe don't change as much as things that that EDC does. But we get to work on all sorts of crazy projects that bring new industry into the city or catalyze new job growth for New Yorkers and ensure that there are local jobs for local people and city money is being used to do that. Wow. So cool. I feel, John, what's the most top of mind thing you'd like to ask since I know this is like something you're super interested in learning about? We had Russell Wong on the other episode for Urban Planning from Canada. And like, how do we, what do you want to talk about here? Um, well, hey, Hugh, this is our podcast. So the both of us want and wherever Colleen wants as well. But yeah, I can start. Colleen, when you like first went, you got your master's degree and you're like pursuing this path. Is this mm-hmm. just like pretty aligned with what you were expecting? And yeah, if you could reflect on that journey, that'd be great. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's it's always, it's different for everybody. <laughs> but for me, when I went to grad school, I think part of my reason for going. So I worked at a urban planning consulting firm in Vancouver before I went to grad school. And we mainly focused on community engagement. Vancouver is a very small city. Basically, if you're in planning, you know, everybody else in urban planning. And I felt a little bit frustrated at that organization and a lot because of one very important project, working on the city's transportation fare study. And basically, Vancouver is a very diverse city, many folks who are immigrants, many folks who speak another language or predominantly speak another language, that kind of thing. And these are like, feels like very small things. No one was willing to translate any of the materials during this pretty important process that like was going to change how we, the transportation system. And so I got really frustrated because I felt like people were not in, people like me and people who like maybe have family or have personal experiences with people of color were not really in those decision-making positions. And I felt like I wanted to be in, in those positions with the right tools in order to ensure that even like smaller things like this were fundamental to our planning processes. So a big part of wanting to go to grad school was to be well-equipped to sit at the table and do things like this because urban planning as a field is one that has to reckon with the history of discrimination and really poor planning practices that really did not benefit huge communities 
of color, especially. That's why I went to grad school. <laughs> and I mainly wanted to go to grad school for both transportation planning and climate planning. And so when I went to grad school, new city, new country, really a new type of school, like it was a private school, uh, things that I was not used to at all. So really got wrapped up in the whirlwind of grad school, especially an institution that was like really research oriented. And so I don't, I only don't regret any of my time there, just for the record. <laughs> it was life changing experience for sure. But I think you, when you go to an institution like that, MIT, like you just, you get wrapped up in things that you didn't originally care about before, especially like when a lot of people are focused on research or focused on tech or focused on developing a product or going into business. And there's so much money floating around for all of those things, you pulled in different directions. So when I came out of grad school, I started working at a research nonprofit, developing a tech product, which sounds like what one would do after they leave a school. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I worked at this place called First Street Foundation, and it was about climate change. It was about, it was a lot of mapping and research for a flood model and essentially assessing flood infrastructure across the U.S. and assessing how it impacted real estate, the real estate market. So all things I was very interested in coming out of school, but maybe I wasn't really planning related. And I think I was really missing that whole like planning component. So somehow, and then we hit the pandemic and I was like, I don't know, like a year in, <laughs> hit the pandemic. I ended that role. Uh, it was a contract. I had visa things happening. So I just did freelance consulting after doing, going back to some of the work that I was doing before I got to work with a really cool organization called Elemental Accelerator. And there I was focused on developing like a mapping tool for their business training. So they got their role as like their venture capital firm for climate tech. And they wanted to train their like CEOs and C-suite folks to be basically literate in climate justice. And so I was helping them develop a, like a platform for that and mainly a tool for understanding the communities that they were a part of. That was bringing me like slightly closer back to planning. Eventually I landed in a transportation planning role at a, another consulting firm, but it was, this was like a really nice place to be, I think. And you know, going back to New York and to Boston to do this role. And it was really focused on like neighborhood community or city-based planning for transportation projects. So I got to do like capital projects or bike projects, last mile distribution, cargo bike projects, and like street design, all sorts of crazy stuff that, that really brought me back to community. And I was like looking for, I really love that job, but I was looking for, I don't know, for personal reasons, I was looking for like a different place to, to one, be back in New York where my community, my, my personal community was, because that's that was impacting my day-to-day. -day. And also not necessarily a subject matter change, just like a part in the system change. So I worked a lot on the private side. I wanted to expand to the public sector. And so I finally ended up at, back at EDC in their offshore wind initiative. And it really combined very, like in retrospect, very beautifully, all these things that I was really interested in when I wanted to go to grad school. The Offshore Wind Initiative is one that is trying to basically create a new industry in New York City focused on renewable energy. These, the wind farms for out in the ocean will create enough energy to produce basically 100% renewable energy for New York State. 
by 2035, 2040. It is a huge opportunity to create working class jobs for local residents, jobs that will benefit usually the communities. Like usually when you have like a new industry, like when you build industry in cities, they're built in neighborhoods where there's like lower real estate costs, all those different things, and tend to not benefit the people who live there. But there's a very conscientious effort in New York City, especially being supported by these environmental justice communities to bring green industry to these neighborhoods, to invest back in those neighborhoods, to ensure those folks get to be in these well-paying good jobs for this huge opportunity that's coming to the city and to the country. So somehow, very crazily enough, all of my whole job, my new job encompasses like this climate change initiative, this like waterfront resilient planning, this neighborhood planning, and a lot of like freight distribution kind of aspects suddenly (laughs) that have all coalesced in this one job. So to answer your question in this very roundabout way, yes, I do think I have ended up at a job that represents what I wanted to go to grad school for, but I didn't expect it to happen. (laughs) Sorry for talking for so long. (laughs) <laughs> Talk, the, this is about you this, the spotlight is on you no strings attached no humbleness just this is it raw colleen all right sorry how, how dare you talk so long on a I podcast know. where you're the <laughs> guest <laughs> gosh Let's end this. yeah this is a personal issue i'm working on it I'm working on letting the spotlight be on me Good. You deserve it because everything that you just said is absolutely incredible. Like what an amazing journey from your BA to MA to all the different projects that you've worked on. And it's really interesting and it's really inspiring how all these projects are very community driven. I'm curious, just what's your why? Simon Sinek quote, what's your why? I'm just like, how and why are you in urban planning, climate change, offshore wind renewables? Is it just... Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's that's such a big question. I think being in I think one thing that really motivates me is to be working in to be working in climate change is for my family, for like people like my family. Like I did not come from a lot of money. My family was all poor. We were immigrants. I really had a really great social network system that supported our transition into Canadian life and that allowed me to go to university and those kinds of things and state of the world, blah, 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 insert the entire state of the world. And now here we are (laughs) 30 years later and I'm trying to, I think, enact change in the world through my work because I think there needs to be more people who come from these backgrounds in positions where we're investing our money into infrastructure, we're investing our money into climate change, where we need to have more money invested into climate change because it's really impacting, it's gonna impact us all in our lifetime, pretty much right now, and will only become more and more obvious. And the people who are gonna be impacted first and the most are folks from these backgrounds. And I think I see a lot of the time there are people who are quite divorced from that upbringing and unable to see how like direct monetary aid can help folks get food on the table or how actually like how to actually provide help and aid and 
structural changes that will help the poorest or the ones who are the most marginalized, the ones who don't have the resources to, to adapt to climate change. And that's a really, that's a really like big answer <laughs> to this question. But I think the ultimate why is I think that being in that position allows you to influence the decisions made. And we need more people who are willing to both be in those positions and speak up about how things are being implemented in order to make things more just and more fair, <laughs> more fair, more just. But yeah, that's, I think that's my vibe. That's amazing. Thanks, Lily. <laughs> there's more than just me. I just want to many people. I'm glad there's so many more people working on this. Oops, sorry, we already locked in the title as a uh, Colleen Chan, savior of climate change. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say I think the offshore wind industry has been really nice because there's a lot renewable energy isn't new, but offshore wind is in the U.S. at least. And so there's a lot of emphasis on the federal level and the state level to emphasize like investment into environmental justice communities. And so there's a lot of people who are being hired into these positions where they come from the community or they're like planners who focus on this type of work, or there's like a huge like community outreach, community engagement portion of the industry. And that's any other <laughs> type of industry that has come about. And so everyone you meet in the offshore wind industry actually talks a lot about how how environmental justice communities are being placed at the forefront of this industry development. So I think that's really cool. I think another thing that's really cool about offshore wind is that it's, in my opinion, like reparations, because a lot of these wind companies who are developing these really large projects, they're usually former oil and gas companies who have now rebranded to be energy companies. And uh, so this, that's like BP, it was like Shell, like basically any oil company, they are the companies developing this, these offshore wind farms and requiring them to have to give direct investments into these communities is a little bit, is a little bit like, like reparations to me. And it's, it's nice to have that be at the forefront. That is an interesting point that you brought up because I have noticed that whereas maybe in the early 2000s people would be like we need to not rely on oil and we need to like we need to like produce more oil like that language has slowly shifted to we need energy when they like really mean the same thing and it's like interesting to see how that branding has changed and yeah and hopefully energy companies are like really serious about like more sustainable yeah. forms of energy production and like everything else involved yeah follow-up question if you're like thinking about climate change on a daily basis like for the job number one that that seems like a really downer thing to yeah. have or to be immersed in but yeah my I guess my question is like what keeps you up at night and like what yeah. what scares you the most about the dozens of ways, the dozens of ways that climate change can ruin us. Oh man, why keeps me up at night? Oh boy. I think it's weird because like a lot of people ask me how I stay optimistic when I work in climate change all the time. And I think it's because I know a lot of people are working on climate change <laughs> and we are making right moves 
somehow we figured out how to like make the right moves to move forward, even if it feels on the whole a little bit bleak. Give me an example. The Inflation Reduction Act that was passed a couple months ago, largest climate bill in U.S. history <laughs> by, by a really long shot. I think it was like $300 billion in tax credits or something for very specific energy investments. So like credits for wind, solar, and hydro, I believe. Tax credits for transportation electrification, tax credits for so many like different types of investments that are really going to drastically reduce carbon emissions. And I think the thing that was missing from all of that, and maybe the thing that keeps me up at night, is the fact that a lot of the things that we wanted that were left out of that bill was about social infrastructure. So how can we directly build programs that help like the most vulnerable people access money, access shelter, access relocation assistance, access like housing, sustainable housing options in the place where they live, in the place that their family has lived for a long time, all these different aspects that we don't, we can't, we are unable to quantify. And I think what keeps me up at night is our inability to see as society, not like you, me, and you, but like our inability to see as a society how to take care of each other best. I think that's the part that scares me the most. Yeah, and I think that's hard That's hard to sit with because you can see in so many ways the divorce between really the ultra wealthy or the, or like the pe- people with like certain life experiences and those who have had a really hard time in life. Yeah. I think that's what scares me. I recently read like a, this is going to be a tangent. <laughs> I recently read this article about, from Raj Chetty. He was like, a, he's like a researcher, but it said that the biggest indicator of social mobility was social connection at a young age. So people of different classes being really close to each other when they're growing up. And you can point like, this is a better indicator than anything else that has ever come before. Better than race, better than educational quality, better than anything. And you just look at our society and you're like, we have private schools, we have segregated schools, we have all these different types of schooling that kind of reduce that interaction at such a young age. And I think those are the things that like, I look at and I'm like, so that's so hard to change. And then they're like, reflected later on when like now the biggest issue that I see that I never touch as a person like working is like housing because it scares me I'm like I don't know how to I don't know how to fix that how do you provide like sustainable and affordable housing I don't know if we can fix that but yeah I can I could go on forever I could go on forever so stop I think on a that was an amazing what keeps you up at night what is it that wakes you up in the morning that you look forward to Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, how positive. Okay. What wakes me up in the morning? Coffee. Coffee wakes me up in the morning. Love it. <laughs> there we go. Coffee until coffee beans die. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think what keeps me. Oh yeah. I think I, I said this one. Oh, okay. Maybe I can maybe I draw something else. Yeah. I think there, I know that there's a lot of people who are also thinking about these things and working on climate change and fighting the good fight because I don't know. There's no other option. You like see all this mess and you're like, I either fight or I don't fight. Do I just lie here? Yeah. So I think that's. Or what about instead of fighting, what are some things that get you up in the morning that you see people building that you think Mm -hmm. are really cool? Yeah. 
That's a good, that's a good question. Obviously, there have been really I'm back. You're back. You're good. Just keep going. So one more time. <laughs> we'll edit it. Yeah. No, I think that there have been lots of, I think, different policies that have been passed, obviously, that have enabled basically, okay, how do I put this in a way where I feel like it's tangible? Okay. I think one thing that I really learned on the job is like the relationship between like policy and like public sector and then like individuals, really. And people who talk about policy, like these big lofty goals, like net zero, like this many buses, this many whatever, like you're setting large policy decisions, like that creates a pathway for someone to take. And oftentimes that someone has to be like a city or like a public entity that goes after that goal. So like, for example, the state has of New York has set a goal renewable and 100% renewable energy by 2040. The federal government has set a goal, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. So those two pathways are great, but someone has to walk the walk, right? And so I think I see, I think I can see more clearly now how those, how those different entities are related or those different like work products basically are related. And it feels I think attainable for a lot of different entities right now to be walking down these pathways to achieve those goals, essentially. So I see a lot of people going, there's renewable energy goals. We're all going after renewable energy power. And that's not just the city, but like we're one player and private entities are also saying we need to build renewable energy or the city sets a goal for hundred percent fleet electrification for all of our buses. And there are private companies who are designing like electric vehicles that go like that can go faster or go long for a longer period of time and just like it activates everybody to create and address like the technical technological challenges that we need to really bring these solutions to life and I see that more and more now than I have before I think before it was it's been less clear which ones are our priorities and now I think because everyone is freaking out <laughs> about our climate crisis, it's like all bets are off, all solutions are good, everybody has to be working on it, and we're creating the right pathways to get there. So now that's a good, that's a good reason to wake up. <laughs> that's such a good reason to wake up. Wow. I think you've taught me like 15 things already today that I didn't know. And I work in the fintech world and there's a lot of things called like corporate OKRs, objectives and key results type methodologies. And I really haven't thought about it. I'm just young and growing older and learning more by the day, but it's interesting to hear about policy, which is just a big objective that then public interest or private interests or individuals aspire towards. And there's incentivized structures that are top down or middle out or bottom up designed. And then people create and innovate and try to create value and push those metrics forward or ascertain those metrics. I, I really had no idea in certain ways. And it's amazing how 100% renewable bus electricity transport type thing. Like, it's so cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm so happy that 
there are all these things like that are happening without sometimes you're like wake up and you're like there's nothing I can do about this thing, this horrible thing that happened in the news. But then you like, I I feel thankful that I get exposed to all these different industries where everyone really is trying to solve this problem. <laughs> Even if there's a lot of money. But yeah. <laughs> hey, add more money as long as it's going to the right initiatives, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I might agree to that. I just agree to that. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we know that they're actually altruistic and quality initiatives and not just being criminally taken? I don't know. Ask John. <laughs> Ask John. John, well, tell me more. I don't have any answers, but I do have a question. So yeah, for you, Colin, I am curious about if you think about best case scenario in five years, like what does like the scope of your work look like? What does your impact look like? And yeah, I'm just curious, what are you aiming for other than inching us away from drastic climate change? But like, as like you as an individual and you as someone mm -hmm. with a career and you as someone with like dreams and aspirations. That's a hard one because I don't know if anyone's ever asked me this question. <laughs> like this. Let's see, in five years, in five years, hopefully the offshore wind industry <laughs> exists. I say that only, not only, but because I think it's really important for it to exist. And I hope that I was a part of it existing. And right now it's still early stages. So it'll be really exciting to see offshore wind farms having been built or being built from New York Harbor. So I hope I'll get to, I'll get to see that. I think my role right now, I do a lot of kind of like connecting of different opportunities. So once someone described like my portfolio as like uh, being in everyone's business <laughs> in order to make offshore wind happen. And that's, I feel like, is the role of a planner, to be a connector, to know your, like, technical stuff, like permitting, and to know zoning, and to know the real estate, and all the different players in a city. That's all very cool to me. And I hope to continue using those same skills that I really enjoy using for, for this type of planning. I think one thing I would love to delve deeper into that I don't dive so much into right now. So right now, I do more, like, the real estate, the on-land kind of waterfront stuff. So like, we need to build a port. How do we build the port? And who do we need to talk to get the money to build the port? <laughs> and it's lining all the ducks in a row to make that a reality connected to this larger industry. And I hope, I think in the future or in five years, I would like to be thinking more broadly about the different systems that are connected to the offshore wind industry or these sites. So what I mean by that is I hope I get to work on the marine uh, maritime freight infrastructure, which is one really exciting initiative that we're starting right now to basically take trucks off the road. <laughs> so like a scope expansion. So we want to, so like New York City, I don't know if you've heard this, New York City orders a lot of stuff online <laughs> and it's only grown in the last couple of years, but because New York City real estate is so expensive, a lot of the distribution points are actually outside of the city. So Amazons of the world will all ship their stuff to like New Jersey and then they'll truck it into New York City because there isn't cheap real estate to like just have a warehouse to hold stuff. In order to mitigate that, because there's so many additional benefits, like you gotta, it, one, one of the opportunities is to 
put that all on ships and use the entire waterfront that New York City has. The thing that built New York City, the waterfront, you take trucks off the road. So want to delve more into that realm. And on the other end, so that's like the water side and then like on the land side to really be working on things that benefit our community. So hopefully we'll be building better streets or a better, because there's like a huge private player in all of these sites to have those private players be investing in projects that benefit the actual community. So what I mean is like, maybe they'll build a park, maybe they'll build a training center, a school, something that like the community needs. And I hope I'll be working on implementing some of those projects as well. It is a subject, that subject matter expansion. <laughs> and I think in terms of skills expansion, I hope I get to mentor more folks and manage more folks and maybe be wearing different, like different hats in terms of maybe I'll be teaching, maybe I'll be writing more, maybe I'll be like doing things outside of work, but are still related to like topics that I'm interested in. So I know that answered your question. I haven't, that's my initial word vomit. <laughs> yeah, you good. I share the sentiment that you have about trucks taking up a lot of space and just like in general, being unpleasant to be around because they're like 1% of all the cars on the road, but they're like 20% of the emissions. They have to do all these like complex things with their brakes because of like how heavy a truck can be. I guess when you're holding like 80,000 pounds, then like you need like a different set of skills to drive it. And then your brake pads, they like die more often. And then you need to do all these special things for it to work. And then you have like trucks that that will just keep rolling down the hill and then you need to like build the separate section where the truck rolls but yeah TLDR I think we can do with fewer trucks especially for I don't think they should be driving through New York City because I've also heard as justification for keeping certain freeways in New York alive just because like because like trucks need them and they like can't drive in on any other roads and like my question would be like oh why don't we like, why do we actually need these trucks? Can we like get rid of the roads and have more space for people and that whole kind of thing? But I was curious about your vision of like, of like boats sending cargo to each other. What does that look like? Is yeah. it like, is it like the storage is on the port or is it just the transportation? But um, yeah. Good question. Yeah. I think it honestly, like this, it's not like new, but like to the scale that we want it happen it's new but basically the idea around a marine highway as which is what they're calling the project is that instead of using a truck to get from like the this is a very technical term the second to last mile which is like from the giant warehouse to the mini warehouse where you can truck back and forth from you can use a boat to do that so you can have a big distribution point somewhere New Jersey, for example. And instead of sending a truck from New Jersey to Manhattan, you can send a boat to New Jersey. Maybe they're taking, maybe they're taking a smaller load. So maybe it's a smaller boat, depending on the size of the pier. And then you can bring it to like lower Manhattan to one of the other piers. And then from that pier, you can use smaller trucks. So you've seen the little mini trucks, but they're like beer or like whatever from one place to the other they can be like electric powered you can have a quad cycle which is like a bike 
essentially like an e-bike uh, cargo with, bike <laughs> yeah and they act like those small mini trucks you can have if they're if depends it really depends on the size of these things you can have roll on roll off so like you can have bigger things and they roll like the whole pallet off and maybe there'll be like a little storage area and then it'll be stored there and like people can go back and forth from the storage area to bring goods and services to the last mile so that would be the last mile from the pier to where it's going would be the last mile and the reason why that might work in New York City is because New York City has 520 miles of, of waterfront. There are a lot of piers that are not used that could be reused or reactivated in order to bring goods and closer to where people are demanding it. And by taking trucks off the road, you reduce like the impact on the infrastructure of the roads. I don't know if you've ever gone biking in a street in Brooklyn and been like, wow, there's a lot of potholes on this road. And that's probably exacerbated by all the truck traffic that's happening. And yeah, it's just like one of, it's like an additional option because it's a way of getting goods closer and being able to provide like an alternate last mile alternative to truck goods to like different neighborhoods. That being said, it doesn't, like the actual mechanism hasn't fully designed yet. They could keep they could even keep the goods on the boat and they'll just be, they'll just be like floating there for a while, like a couple of days or the whole day. It could come up in many forms. Like, you could have offshore islands of like storage, just oh, like yeah. storage islands <laughs> and then have a network of, of, of like boats <laughs> that are grabbing stuff. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of, since Manhattan is an island, there's plenty yeah. of room. Yeah, there is there's a lot of places to bring the goods in. Yeah. yeah. And I suspect it's a little cheaper to use that room than to use like somewhere in like Fidei, for example. But just a guess. Uh, maybe. I think it really depends because we don't really have the, we don't have the boats for it. Like you need to, it's like a new thing. You got to really redesign it so that it's more cost effective, but it will be, I think the important part is it'll be emissions reducing and reducing air pollution, which is what is the other aspect that trucks are causing. It's like trucks are bad. Are bad. <laughs> I feel like it's probably going to go even more microservice-y with Uber Eats type delivery processes, but for cargo delivery processes. That yeah. Cool. I love it. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I might get mad about this. I get mad about this. Okay. Gorillas. No? Do you what? know, like, Getter, like, uh-uh. DoorDash, Grocery. DoorDash, yes. Okay. We'll go with, sorry. These are all, I guess these are all. No te gusta? You don't like them? <laughs> What's happening? I'm ready. All right, lay it on. Post dates. All right, no, tell me no more. Poor K. I think it's just because of how they're doing it. So basically, a huge criticism of like increasing online traffic, increased online, is all these distribution like centers. And oftentimes they're in like poorer neighborhoods because that's where all the industrial land is. But things like DoorDash and Getter. And gorillas, these are all like 15 minute like grocery delivery services. They can't have their distribution point like even in like South Brooklyn. They have to have it like in all the action. So you've been seeing a lot of these distribution points start taking up like ground floor retail space in New York City. I don't know about elsewhere. I just know this because I walk around and I'm like, but basically they'll be taking up ground floor real retail space. So stores that you would normally be able to walk into and buy something, you're not allowed to walk in and buy that, buy things from whatever Gorillas or DoorDash there. It is mainly used as a distribution point in any given community. So 
instead of a bodega or like some tiny shop or whatever, you'll have all these retail retail shops that are like just like distribution points now in your neighborhood. And it hasn't been proven that they serve like food deserts or like places where you can't get like goods and services or I don't know I just it makes me so mad I'm like what is this is this is not the highest and best use which is like a land use term or zoning term (laughs) I don't know it just makes me mad they serve all of lower Manhattan come on I'm just kidding that's Uh, it's so annoying I can't do it I hate it here the joke is that lower Manhattan is not a food desert it's like the opposite so see I I see what you mean. And I haven't heard that perspective before. As a consumer, my opinion of Getter and other places has been, whoa, that was fast. (laughs) (laughs) So, No, 15 minute delivery is destroying the city. That's my (laughs) op-ed. Thoughts, discourse. I never knew about that, to be honest. I just thought that DoorDash and stuff delivered from the actual mom and pop shop or the pizza hut or something Mm. (laughs) like I didn't I don't know if they do that here in Arizona I'm curious maybe like on a more dense population they can come up with some like 15 minute concept interesting yeah never heard of that yeah do you have any other like 15 minute delivery or like good delivery service I maybe I'm out of the loop. Maybe I'm just not cool. I don't use TikTok either or be real. I don't know. But the times that I've used the stuff, it usually takes 40 to 50 minutes to an hour or so. <laughs> huh. Noted. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. That really is. Yeah. And that's yeah. why Green Highway should be a business to business service. <laughs> Green it means it's not direct to consumer. Like the, the uh, waterway, like it means, oh, like the good maker is giving it to the good seller. You don't want the, the people in the waterfront condos to benefit. No, don't let anyone put this on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they are benefiting. They're benefiting from the improved air quality. And the, uh, and safe the uh, streets. <laughs> yeah. And Pauline, your quick take on. New York City being the first city in North America to implement congestion pricing. Go. What? Oh, wow. Wow. Are you sure they're going to be the first city to implement congestion pricing? I think um, so. I thought, it was, I thought it was sometime next year that it was going to happen. It's I already been it's, voted in. Uh, I think it might be delayed, but yes. Let's see. Congestion pricing, I think is, I'm biased. I am an urban planner. I do not drive a car. So I am biased by, and I say that, Yes, it is a very good initiative to have gone through. What congestion pricing does is it just, it like, I think they also, they also have low-income programs too <laughs> for like folks. This is all, it was very complicated. This is all very complicated. But by reducing truck traffic or any kind of traffic, like all car and motor vehicle traffic into the, like the central business district, I think it's super important to be having congestion pricing. I think congestion is like a big issue right now. <laughs> for many reasons and reducing it will reduce traffic. It will make pedestrians safe, like pedestrian experience safer. It's going to raise money for New York city. I know people in New Jersey hate it because like, they're like right there. (laughs) I work here. Like, why won't you let me work here? But I think it's important that there's like many options to bring people into the city that don't, that won't toll you 
And on the other hand, like people who work in New York, but live in New Jersey also don't get taxed in New York. So there's like multiple, it's not, I'm not a New York elitist. I just think any city was providing the job may have spent some public resources to create those jobs. So it might be nice to get some sort of revenue to, to be brought into the city. But I know this is a controversial topic and a controversial opinion. So I will hear other people on their takes. Pauline, <laughs> are you familiar with the, the last cycle of like the last election cycle in Vancouver? Oh, yes. Yeah, so uh, like what would you... super, super, I know the broad strokes. Do you have a message for Ken Sim who ran? It's okay, we don't have to, I'm just kidding. We record it. Next question. <laughs> and, and last question. I, do you want me to tell you? Do you want me to tell you? We I can, can tell you. And, all right, let's up close. Oh, no, so. I got it. I know, I know what to tell Ken Sim. We okay. do need congestion pricing in Vancouver. <laughs> That's what I would tell Ken Sim. <laughs> Right. You heard it tax. here first. <laughs> <laughs> also, the road tax was never actually implemented. We wish that it was. <laughs> anyway, we ask all our guests this, but oh, two questions. Number one, do you have generic words of wisdom for our 13 to 14 listeners? And then number two, is there anything you want to give a shout out to? Or or if people are like, oh, I love Colleen's work and if you want to point them towards something. Wow. Generic words of wisdom. Oh man. I don't know if I have a good one, but maybe I'll be a little bit more vulnerable. Like I think I have gone through a lot of like personal growth in the last couple of years, which require a lot of like reflection and time spent with self. And I think that's something that everyone should spend time, especially if you're in your twenties, <laughs> but also if later in life, spend time doing, because I think you can only become your best self when you know who you are and you're able to spend time, like giving yourself empathy and giving yourself like love. And in, in addition to self-care, <laughs> they're not the same. And so I would, I encourage everyone to do that. And then in terms of shouting things out feel free to instagram me <laughs> it's my that's my public that's my public mode of communication and specific things for your chinatowns these are and other ethnic enclaves. they are important places for important people my handle on instagram is colleen c-o-i-n-c <laughs> you heard it here first yes Oh, am I closing? Oh, okay. I can close. That concludes another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast, where we talk about craft, community, and building a meaningful career. I'm John. That other guy is Hugh. Thanks again to Colleen for coming on. If anyone listening wants to reach out to us for whatever reason, if you want to sponsor our next trip, international trip in a beach resort, or if you want to say hi and even be a guest, we'll take that too. You can email at us, email us at moonteapodcast at gmail.com. And with that, have a good rest of your day and bye everyone. Peace. Peace. Yay. <laughs>